today on Zillennials, we're going to be chatting a little bit about teaching. So for this episode, it's going to be a little bit different from some of our previous ones. Leanne's going to ask me a couple of questions about teaching. So if you are somebody who is interested in learning more about teaching, or maybe you might want to be a teacher someday, or maybe somebody you know would like to be a teacher, could be a good one to tune into. A good place to start would be talking a little bit about your experience with teaching and your path to teaching. So why don't you give a brief overview of why you wanted to be a teacher and then what classes you needed to take to set up for that? When I first decided that I wanted to be a teacher, what I did originally was I took an introduction to teaching class in my high school, which essentially let me go and be in a classroom for the last two class periods of my day, which was really awesome. Honestly, like it was a fantastic program. I really enjoyed it there. I think that it gave you a good snapshot of teaching, but also like it was slightly different just because it was already in like an established teacher's classroom, you know, so you could kind of see how they ran things. And the teacher that I was with, he treated it more like student teaching, where he at first let me observe a lot and kind of just go around and help. And later towards the end, I got to teach my own lesson, which was very kind of him. I really appreciated that. But that was kind of when I figured out that I wanted to go and be a teacher was from that class. So one of the reasons why I had considered being a teacher was because I always loved learning and I just really wanted to make other people excited about learning. And so that's kind of why I wanted to get into the field. I also was like really debating about doing English education versus art education just because I love reading. I love writing. Anything literary, I am pretty much a fan. Actually, that's a lie. I have some books that I don't like, but still. um, So I really enjoy English. And I really enjoyed art. And so I wanted to pick both of those things initially. But then when I was talking to colleges, it seemed like there wasn't enough overlap to double major in English and art education, which I thought was kind of interesting, but just so happened to be where I went wouldn't allow you to do that. So I ultimately ended up picking art. In terms of like some of the classes that we did, we did art classes, obviously. We would take basic studio level college courses in a variety of things like painting, printmaking, sculpture, jewelry, ceramics, like a wide, wide variety of things so that we had a good knowledge so that when we went to go and teach, we could reflect back to those classes. And then we also took cognitive development classes and educational psychology classes. So... With college, I know, you know, if you're not going into teaching, you kind of just major in whatever you major in and that's all you take. What is it like balancing, I guess for you, the art classes with education classes? Is it, do you not go as deep into the art classes than you would if you were just an art major? Yeah. So if you were just a fine arts major, you would take more upper level studios for people who our art education majors in my particular program, what we did was we would take like the basic one or two level classes. And so we wouldn't get to like the three slash four level classes necessarily. And so that's kind of how they had our program structured. Every program is a little bit different, but we essentially had to take level one of all of these different classes. And then we could pick, I think, like two or three that we wanted to take upper level courses in. What's something you would recommend? high school students consider when they're looking at teaching programs? So when you're looking at a teaching program, what I would say is probably the most important is just going and making sure that they have a lot of time that you're going to be observing in a classroom, just because I think that that is the closest you can get to actually teaching before your program ends. And so I think that that's really important. Some other things that I think are really helpful is educational psychology development classes, I found those to be really helpful even when I'm teaching now because it kind of lets you know a little bit about essentially like the way that people think and why they think that way and cause and effect. And so I thought that that was very helpful. If your school has a classroom management class, a hundred times over, I would take that because as a newer teacher, a lot of the times what I see people struggling with, myself included, I mean, my first year I was definitely not perfect by any means. But what I see a lot of new teachers struggling with is that classroom management. So I would ask specifically in your program and see what sort of classes there are to take that deal with classroom management, especially real life situations in classroom management. It's different to see it on paper versus to see it in real life. 
So I would definitely say to check that. And then also differentiation and diverse learners. So for those of you who are not in education and maybe don't know what I mean by that, for differentiation and diverse learners, I'm specifically talking about if you have a kid who is in the special ed program, or let's say, for example, you have a kid with an IEP or like an individualized education plan or a 504 plan, which is kind of like an IEP, but a little bit less so. These are essentially all like intervention type things to help and bring the kid up to grade level and to help them succeed. Or alternatively, they may already be at grade level and just need some extra assistance. For example, I know I had some kids who were extremely smart who just had trouble reading. If you read them the stuff, they could answer it. They had no troubles with that. Everything was fine. But if you asked them to read things on their own, they couldn't read. That's kind of where like an individualized education plan or like a 504 would come in. And so just kind of taking classes that address those things, I think, is really helpful because then when you go out into the real teaching world or your own classroom, you kind of get to uh, take what you've learned from those classes and apply them. So like specifically, if you have anything that deals with specific strategies for ADHD or how to run a classroom if you have IEP students and you're the only teacher. I think those would be helpful things. We've talked about this before, too. I think one of the hardest things is the classroom management, which I'm not a teacher, so I've never done any of this. But it just sounds like we've talked about how we've primarily taken upper or like more challenging courses, such as the honors and AP classes. And so I feel like I didn't really notice maybe after middle school, like I didn't really notice classroom management being a problem. Because for the most part, people in the classes that we took just kind of sat down, did the work, took notes, whatever, and then it wasn't really an issue. So what's one of your tips for when you're not teaching those classes and you kind of have a more mixed population in terms of interest in the subject or like you were saying, some students on special education plans? Like, I just feel like it's very hard for teachers because I know... They talk a lot about how teachers end up teaching to the middle and how the people who they're the people who think it's going to be too easy and they kind of get left behind. And then the people who think it's still too hard get left behind. So how do you balance all of that? That is a very difficult balance to strike, I would say. And that's why sometimes you'll see people saying like teaching is an art form kind of is, but it's kind of not. It's because it's like you do have to address all of the different people in the population and there might be 30 kids in a class and there's one you. So one thing that you can do is you can pair up students if you have a student who's a really great helper and then you have a student who really struggles. Try to uh, foster that friendship and try to have them like at the same table so the person who is you know, a really good helper or really knows what they're doing can help out that person who is maybe struggling a little bit more. Another thing that I've done in the past is, and this is specifically like for kids who say that they have trouble reading. If there's anything written on the board, I will always say it verbally so that they can hear it rather than having to read it. And that's like a more simple thing. So like when your teacher's talking at you in the middle of class and you're like, yeah, yeah, we know all the notes are on the board. That's why we do it. It's not for those people who are like, I can copy down stuff off the board. It's for people who have difficulty reading. So that's kind of why we would say things for people like that. Another thing that we do is like we have a lot of visuals, especially because I teach art. So of course we have a lot of visuals. So sometimes I'll just like put a picture up there and I'll be like, all right, we're going to chat about this. What do you think it is? Why do you think they made it? Let's just talk about it. What are some things you notice? And so by having visuals and prompting a conversation, that can help to get people engaged. One thing that I like to do is sometimes I'll pick controversial art pieces and I mean that in the most G-rated way possible, um, <laughs> aka uh, schools do not come for me. I promise you, I'm trying to show your kids appropriate stuff. But for example, like Marcel Duchamp, he has this artwork called The Fountain, where it's a urinal that is turned on its side. He just ripped this urinal off of who knows where and just put it in a museum and signed his name on it. That tends to be a good one to get my kids involved who are not always the most involved in art because they look at that and they have a strong opinion. So by prompting them with things that will elicit a strong reaction, I find that a lot of the times that helps to get kids engaged. 
I mean, I have a strong reaction to that. I hear that. I'm like, that's just a urinal in an art museum. Exactly. So I usually talk about that with my kids because, you know, it's something that is shocking. Or another thing that I like to do, too, and this, if you're looking for a good resource for it, anti-racist art teachers, I think it's .com. Might be a .org. I'm not sure, but I think it's .com. This is a really good resource. I also like to pull in contemporary examples, a.k.a. people who are still living. Because how many times can you like look at an old dead guy's work and be like, wow, yes, very beautiful, very beautiful. I think that it's just not as relevant to the kids nowadays in some respects. Like, I think it's good to show some of those old, quote unquote, masterworks. However, I think that at the same time, it's kind of nice to see something that's fresh and new and that the person is still alive. And maybe it addresses some of the issues that we see today. I think that could work with kids, especially who aren't super into art, because I feel like if you're super into art, you might be like totally down for discussing the old dead guys painting. But I think for people who aren't as interested, showing something a little more contemporary could bring them in more. Because I think like we talked about on our art episode was, at least for me, I'm pretty sure when I took art, the only art I was shown was old dead guys. And that's usually, well... In the past, that's usually been the case. I know a lot of art teachers nowadays are really trying to change that narrative. And I think it really fits because I think a lot of art teachers nowadays are trying to expose kids to a wider variety of art. So they see not just what is in the museums as art, but they can kind of see it in their everyday life. Yeah. And I think it doesn't necessarily minimize those other works. It's just kind of trying to show people that there's more to it than that. And like, you don't have to paint in that style or draw in that style because I feel like I know they're different because you know like I don't know Picasso like he went through all those different stages and like his cubism looks different than the other things but I feel like in general there's a lot of similarities between those styles that the you know like French Renaissance painters or whatever did I think it's cool that there's more of an effort to show kids that art can be very different yeah I agree I think that it's definitely something that's nice and I like to try to incorporate that so I know you mentioned a couple tips, and I feel like these were things that you've learned because you've had a couple years experience in teaching. And so what was the student teaching experience like? And do you think it really does enough to prepare future teachers? So for my student teaching, I did an elementary placement and an upper level placement, which I believe the elementary was like K through four or K through five. And then your upper level can be like 6 through 12. My elementary placement was very challenging. I was planning for 11 different classes, which the typical teacher load is 5 to 7. So I was planning 11 different lessons, and I had a really hard time with that, as you can imagine, especially because I did not have any lessons to fall back on. I think I taught maybe like one or two of my teacher's lessons, but a lot of the lessons that I taught were ones that I had written. So there was a immense pressure on me to write every single lesson that I taught. And I think that that was very stressful. I was up consistently till like 4 a.m. And I would leave my apartment at 6 a.m. to get to my teaching's place. And so I think that was maybe a little bit too intense compared to what I had hoped student teaching was going to be like. The thing that I do have to say about student teaching, though, I didn't grade things that often, like they would sometimes make me grade things, but a lot of the times they would grade the work, which was nice. I kind of wish that they would have done a little bit more having me grade things so that I could kind of see how things would be graded or maybe like, okay, we're going to stay after school for like 30 minutes and we'll just grade work for 30 minutes or an hour. I think that would have been fine. So I could kind of see their thought process behind why they would give kids the grade that they gave them. That would have been nice. I think for that elementary placement, I wish that my teacher had let me use a couple more of her lessons or let me repeat a couple lessons. Because the reason why I had 11 classes to plan was because we were at two different schools and she said that she wanted the lessons to be different at each school. And so even though I would be teaching, say, third graders at one school and third graders at the other school, I would have to make two different lessons. And keep in mind, like not everybody's experience is like this. It was very much a wake up call (laughs) and it was very difficult. I would say it kind of reminds me of like how my first year of teaching was, where it was a lot of just trying to keep your head above the water. But my second placement, which was my high school placement, went much better. So keep in mind, like every placement is different. 
And um, if you don't like the way that one teacher does it, keep in mind that that's not how you need to do things. And that's okay. You know, everybody has their own way of doing things. Uh, At my second placement, it was a high school placement, which I was very excited for because I had always thought that I wanted to teach high school art or middle school art. You know, I was always very much into teaching the older kids because I wanted to do things that were more challenging. And I felt like at the middle school level, you could do some of it. And at the elementary school level, I felt like it was more so like teach them their colors and teach them the warm colors and the cool colors and what is the line. Whereas I feel like once you get to those upper level groups, you can do a little bit more advanced work with them. And you have some kids who actually want to go and pursue it as a career, which in my opinion was a little bit more my jam. So for the uh, high school placement, I taught a couple of her lessons. I think I taught maybe like three or so of mine, question mark, something like that. So like it was definitely a blend of teaching her lessons and teaching my lessons and the timeline was longer. And I think that was why I also had such a hard time with the elementary school is because elementary school students, they could finish a project in like three days. High school students, it'll take them like two weeks. So if you're planning out a lesson for high school students, it takes them longer because they're putting more detail into it. You know, they have maybe a little bit more fine motor control. And, you know, sometimes they just want to take a little longer. So for me, I felt like the high school was a much better pace than the elementary school because the elementary school with teaching so many classes and having the turnover so often I felt a little bit overwhelmed but for the high school I really liked it and I felt like I could go around and give the kids more feedback rather than doing panic like oh you don't know how to do this here let me help you oh you don't know how to do this here let me help you so I felt like the high school was a much better fit for me and my teacher that I worked with for the high school was absolutely fabulous I Really liked the way she ran her classroom, and I hope that one day my classroom can be as successful as hers was. I think that's a good point. I think it also ties into our emphasis on trying things out for yourself, whether student teaching, internship, even just getting someone to follow, shadow around, because then I think it helps you figure out which age range of kid do I like working with? Because I think some of the things that you like better about high school is like, Maybe somebody else really likes teaching children what the colors are. So it really is different based on the person. Yeah. And I have to say, like, in terms of teaching little kids the colors and stuff, one thing that I did love about the elementary classroom is the kids were so into everything they were learning, like because they were just curious, you know, like how little kids just have this curiosity. They all wanted to do it because they were like, oh, my gosh, like, this is so cool. This is brand new information. Like, I have to process this. This is so awesome. Where I think as you get older, it's a little bit more about motivating the kids. Whereas like the elementary schoolers have that sort of intrinsic motivation. I can see that. I think it depends too the way the schools are set up. Because I think like you're saying in elementary school, like all the kids are just like, cool, I get to like smear paint around and like, this is awesome. But I think maybe starting in middle school where you're still required, at least the way my school was set up, is like you're still required to take art, but maybe it's not so much your thing or the types of art that you're being taught aren't your thing. And I feel like that's where trying to be like, I don't know, inject some pep into the classroom and some like interest. And I feel like that can be harder too. Yeah, it definitely can. And I think This goes for any grade that you teach. And honestly, this is like good advice for any job, but it's all about the relationships that you build. So building rapport with your students is so critical. And that happens at the elementary level, at the middle school level, at the high school level. But I find for the middle school and the high school levels, if you are having trouble motivating your kids, try working on the relationship you're building with them. Ask them about their day. Ask them about their weekend. Ask them about how did the sports game go last night? Talk to them about the things they're interested in because that will take you a very, very far way. Elementary schoolers, like, yeah, you can ask them about that and I'm sure they'll love it. But I think in middle school and high school, that's where it becomes so necessary because I think that was like one of my, I would say one of my biggest mistakes my first year teaching was I felt like it was a job. Like, you know, I came there to teach the kids intrinsically they should or like naturally they should try to respect me as the teacher 
And I felt like I didn't always see that. And I think it's because I didn't spend enough time building relationships with those kids and rapport with those kids and asking them about, you know, how was this? How was that? Is everything okay? Where I think in my later years now, I've gotten much better at just checking in with my students, asking them, like, are you okay? What did you do over the weekend? Things like that. And just kind of talking about their interests. Because then when you need to go and talk to them about something that they're doing wrong, they see it less as like a personal attack on them. And they see it more as a like, hey, like I noticed that you're doing this thing that doesn't really seem like you. Is everything okay? And I find that that works a lot better. I think the way from an outsider's perspective, I feel like that could be especially helpful in middle school because I think a lot of people who are taking art in high school like are doing it by choice and because they want to be there and learn it. But I feel like middle school and in general, I think middle schoolers are a very difficult age to teach. Like anybody who teaches middle school, like I feel like you're a special type of human because the amount of patience it requires to teach preteens is like I couldn't do it. So I think in general, you know, people can be like this, but I think 11 to like 13 year olds can be especially sassy. And I think if you have that personal relationship with them, I don't know if this is true because you might have more experience like actually dealing with it, but it seems like the chance or the level of sass when you're offering a critique could go down if they're like, oh, you know, this teacher's awesome. Like, I love her. I like going to class. I like doing the work. And it's like, oh, like she's disappointed in me or I'm doing something wrong that like pointing out it's like it's almost kind of like, I don't know. If they like don't want to upset you because they respect you and they're like, oh, wait, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, because like one thing you. okay, so teaching will like for sure humble you. Not going to lie. Kids are ruthless with their opinions. They will tell you what they think at any hour of the day. Oh, my gosh. But one thing you will definitely learn is that respect is earned and not given. So you really do need to work on like building that trust and building how you interact with those kids in order to make sure that you are able to talk to them how you need to talk to them in the classroom. For example, I know at the middle school that I used to teach at, sometimes teachers would go and show up to their sports games and then they'd like ask them the next day, they'd be like, oh yeah, I saw you playing in blah, blah, blah sports game. And like, you were awesome. So like, that's one way to do it. Or like, maybe that's not your jam. Just ask them about it in class. You know what I mean? So Just really focusing on those relationships and building rapport is a huge, huge part of that. And I know that there's like a big push for that. Social emotional learning is like a big push in education right now where it's like you need to know like the whole student and like don't just focus on who they are in the classroom, like focus on like who they are as a person. So I know that that's like a big push too. I think it reminds me too of when you're talking about how someone's acting out that in a way they don't normally I think it's kind of a good thing to have teachers be aware of something could be going on outside that's completely unrelated and again I would say especially with younger students through middle school even high schoolers because I feel like high schoolers aren't really the best with their emotions either so I guess just everybody but it could just be how they're processing whatever's going on in their life and they just don't have a good way to channel it and it this is just how it you know because like you know, like you have the lid on a pot, you're gonna have to let the steam out somehow. And like, this may just be how it is, which like, I don't think excuses bad behavior in a classroom, but it can at least help explain it in a way that you can go to fix it more so than just like yelling at the kid for, I don't know, talking out of turn or something. Definitely. Another good tip that I have for you is every action should have an equal and opposite reaction. For example, like I remember my first year, I had a lot of trouble with like kids throwing supplies across the classroom, which is totally unacceptable. So like they would throw like markers and pencils and like just toss them to other kids and stuff like that. My second year, I got rid of that real quick. What I told them is if I see you throwing something across the classroom, you're going to go and you're going to pick three things up off my floor. And so it stopped that behavior real quick. So like if you have like something that's occurring in your classroom that is not acceptable, And it's not something that's necessarily always worth escalating to your principal or your assistant principal or your dean. Just think about what you can have the kid do in order to stop that behavior. And you want it to be something that like is tied to that behavior. For example, with the throwing things, picking three things up off the floor, 
because likely whatever they threw ended up on the floor. That's why they have to go and pick it up. So it's not like a cruel and unusual punishment, you know? I'm just having them clean up the art classroom. But it is pretty effective. (laughs) So that would be my recommendation for that. It's proportional to what the kid did. Yeah, exactly. And you also want to make sure that you're being fair and equal across like the whole class. So for example, like if you, if one kid does something and you have a reaction to that kid, if another kid does the same thing, you had better have the same reaction towards that kid. So whether that's a positive reaction or a, you maybe need to work on this reaction, it should be the same for both of those kids for the most part because you want to be fair because otherwise you will without a doubt get kids asking well so and so did this and this is what happened why didn't that happen for me and i mean sometimes you need to evaluate it on a case-by-case basis but most of the time you can kind of use the same reaction that's what i was going to say when you were talking about this i was like kids aren't stupid especially i think when it comes to punishment if timmy threw a marker and you got mad and made him pick it up and then, I don't know, Alice threw the marker and you're like, oh, Alice, you just just pick up the thing you took. And it's like not the same punishment. You know that Timmy kid is going to be bringing that up to you. Yeah. And not to mention, like, that can build a lot of resentment towards your teacher because of that. And it's like, that's not what you're trying to do. So act accordingly. You know what I mean? Like, just make sure that whatever you're doing, you're being consistent with it. And, you know, it's not just for, like, punishment behaviors, but even for, like, praise. Like, if you notice that a kid who didn't normally participate participates in your class, you're like, hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate what you said. That's a very good point. And, like, just give them a little bit of, like, extra praise. Or, like, if there's a kid who's always off task and works really well that day, be like, hey, I noticed that you were really on task today. I just want to let you know, like, I really appreciate that. Is there something that helped you stay on task today that we can try to do every day? And kind of like spin it in a really positive light. Positive reinforcement. Exactly. Exactly. So the one thing that I know, and I think a lot of people who aren't in teaching know, is that the first year of teaching is the hardest slash maybe the worst year for teachers. And my understanding is that a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're probably at a new school, you're creating new lessons, you have no sort of experience to fall back on. And I know, like you were saying, learning to manage a classroom with like potentially 30 something individuals. What was your first year like? Does it fall into this pattern? And what pulled you through that first year? Yes, my first year was definitely like that. I cried, I would say, at least once a week. Um, (laughs) There was definitely a lot of frustration and a lot of just sadness as you realize, well, it's not always going to be peaches and ice cream. But one of the things that I did that helped me through it was we had a mentorship program at my school and I would go to my mentor and I'd be like, hey, when this happened, I reacted this way. Should I have done this or should I have done something else? And because she was a teacher who'd been in the classroom for like 20 years, she would tell me, oh, yeah, you you were right in doing this or, oh, no, you should have done this. And so she was really, really helpful in uh, just making sure that I did not lose my sanity through my first year. But the first year is definitely the hardest. And I think you can see that, especially in the first couple years of teaching, about the first five years of teaching, I want to say about 50% of the new teachers leave the profession, which is a staggering number, which I think is also partially a systematic issue because you look at it and you're like, most other fields don't have such a poor rate of retention like that. So what is happening in teaching that makes it that we can't retain those teachers? And I can talk more about my opinions on that in a bit. But back to the first year stuff, it definitely helps you to grow a lot. And just keep in mind, like, after you get through your first year, it will be easier the next year, especially if you're teaching the same subjects. You know, you're going to spend less time on curriculum development because you already spent 80 plus hours a week that year on your curriculum development and your grading and like all this other stuff. So you can reuse lessons as you need to. And that's a big plus for when you go into your second year. I think that's one of those things where it's nice to know that it's actually true because I feel like a lot of first year teachers are probably told that by people that care about them. Like, oh, it'll be better next year. Like, you know, you can do it. Just, I don't know, do your teacher thing and like next year will be easier. But I feel like it's one of those things where when you're in the moment, it's kind of like, no, it won't. Like, this is like really hard. So it's like 
it's nice to have someone who's been through it say, no, like it actually will get easier. You just kind of have to tough out the first year. Yeah, I think generally speaking, it does get easier. I don't think that's the case for every single person. So I say that the second year was easier, but keep in mind, like you get a different set of kids every year. It will always change. And my experience is not going to speak for everyone's experience. That's just generally what I found people saying and what I experienced. I can see that. I think maybe the more administrative stuff in terms of like lesson planning and grading could get easier. But I think like you said, it's kind of a random lottery in terms of what kids you're going to get. And I think that could have a big, be a big influencing factor on how smoothly the year goes. I also think that just because the second year gets easier, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And I think those are two different things. Definitely. Definitely, definitely. So you've taught in two different school systems, and also you've taught before and during a global pandemic. So do you want to do a little bit of kind of comparing and contrasting those experiences? Because I think switching school systems is a big change. And I also think what the last year has done to education is also a big change to adapt to. Well, for sure. So as I've said before, my first couple of years I taught in Kentucky. Generally speaking, what I remember from there was the class sizes. And this is, you know, a general statement were huge. I think there was only two times and I taught like quite a few sections of a class. There were only, I think, two classes in my whole time there that were under 20 kids or like right around 20 kids. Most of the time I had 30, 32, 34 kids in like every single class, which is a lot of grading. (laughs) And it was a larger school for a middle school, I would say. So those classes would sometimes get a little loud just because we had so many people in the room. Overall, it was, I think, a good place to start out. I don't think I would have wanted to stay there long term just for personal reasons. You know, I wanted to be closer to my family. And the area that I was in was slightly more rural. And so I don't think I fit the mold there that well. You lived next to cows. Yeah. It was not slightly more rural. (laughs) Okay, but like, there are some farms over by where I am now too. Like you drive like 30, 45 minutes, you could get to a farm. (laughs) Yeah, you walk five minutes out your front door and there are cows, which I thought was wonderful, but (laughs) it was very close. The cows were very cute. Like, I liked the rural, but I didn't like the rural because like, you know, there wasn't that much to do because we were so rural unless you wanted to drive 45 minutes and like go to a big city. But it was kind of nice because you were always by nature, which was like, that was fun. So my favorite part about you teaching in Kentucky is that I got to visit you because I was like, when am I... I think about it before I went and after I was like, when else would I go to Kentucky? Like, I have no reason to go there. And I know we did some like nature-y, like go for a walk things. And it's really pretty. It's a very pretty place. Like, honestly, if you're somebody who doesn't need to be entertained by things from like a big city and stuff like that, or you just don't need like a lot of things around you, gorgeous place to live. Cost of living is really cheap. And if you can drive. If you can drive, yeah. Yeah, you better be able to drive. You cannot walk anywhere, at least unless you're in the city. Maybe then you could. But if you're not in the city, you can't walk anywhere. But the nature there is really pretty. I mean, it's not a bad place to go and retire. Yeah, I think that's what kind of surprised me. I was like, it's quite pretty. Another thing kind of relating to work-life balance is I feel like it was kind of hard. I don't know because I didn't actually live there, but I feel like it would be kind of hard to have a work-life balance because you finish work and then you're like, what do I do if I don't want to drive an hour? Yeah, so that was probably one of the tougher things that I dealt with was I felt like there just wasn't that much to do around there. You could go to this one really cute local bar that we had, which I don't really drink much, so that wasn't really an option for me. Or I could go to a coffee shop, but there wasn't really like any place that you could just like hang out and just kind of exist, you know, without like spending money. And their library there was very sad. So, so, you know, as somebody who loves to read, it was a little bit of a bummer for me. But I mean, it was very much like you do need to go and seek out things. Uh, There are a couple of things around, but not a lot. So you have to be able to entertain yourself or find something to do. Didn't you do 
was it a book club or was it yoga with like a bunch of like older women at the library or something oh yeah i did that during the summer before covid so they like had a yoga thing going on during the summer and it was literally chair yoga for like old people and i would show up and i'd be like hello (laughs) and so i went i think like maybe two or three times because sometimes i just couldn't make it like it was just at a time where I just wasn't able to go. And I think I found it like towards the end of the summer too, because I was like hardcore looking for things to do. Because even though there was a running club that I would go to sometimes, Kentucky gets really humid and really hot. And so when it's like summertime and it's like 90 degrees at 5 p.m. when you're going to go run, it seems a lot less appealing. So I was like, maybe I should try to find something else. So I tried going to yoga with like these elderly women They were like the nicest human beings ever. Oh my gosh. I loved it. See, that's a good point because I remember how I visited you in October and it was like high 80s. Yeah. Yeah. It was gross. That I think is another big reason why I left the weather. I just couldn't deal with it. So like it wasn't necessarily like my school that caused me to leave. It was there were like a lot of other lifestyle factors that just didn't work for me. And I think that's probably something to consider for teachers i think also with the way um what's that thing called where they can't fire you uh tenure yes that i was thinking with the way tenure works is i feel like if you're in a school that you know you don't want to stay there long term and maybe like you were saying it's like for family reasons or you want to be in a different rural versus urban type situation is like i feel like you kind of have to figure that out before tenure sets in yeah and then also i look at it too and i'm like not gonna lie I'm kind of glad that I was there for like my first couple years because I'm like, that was when all the bad teaching was happening, where I was really struggling with the classroom management and like I had all these issues. And now I'm like, now I get to start with a fresh slate at the school that I'm at now. (laughs) So that's been kind of nice because I'm like, now I have a little bit more like, you know, experience. And so hopefully I'm not having as much trouble with that. And I think that that'll be nice because I've already kind of done those things. Well, I think it's interesting, too, is because I think it was the majority of the time you were in Kentucky, it was teaching people in person, where when you started, your whole last year was remote, pretty much up until like a month or so ago. It was. But you still didn't have every single kid, I don't think. So how did that affect, I guess, lessons or classroom management? In terms of lessons or classroom management, classroom management was so much easier because if a kid did something dumb you could literally kick them out of the google meet and then it was like all right i'm gonna send an email to you to your parents and to the dean classroom management was significantly easier even having like a smaller class size was definitely easier so we started coming back with kids in the classroom i want to say in like january ish was when they first started sending kids back it might have even been like maybe a month or so after that i'm not 100% positive. But that was when they first kind of had kids coming back into the classroom. So with that, whenever you have less people in your classroom, I always find that classroom management is easier. In Kentucky, I would have like, I remember my first year I had 36 kids in one of my classes, which there were like not even enough chairs for those kids. So that was a mess. (laughs) But in the classes that I had here, you know, I think on the upper end, I would have maybe like 14 kids max in my classroom and then maybe like 14 more on my Google Meet. And so it was definitely a lot more manageable. I also really appreciate here they have a union, whereas in Kentucky there was no union. And so the union is really good about making sure that we are compensated fairly and that we get paid a living wage. In my opinion, the kids here are also better behaved, which I think honestly it might just be in large part because it's high school versus middle school. I think in middle school, you still have some of that like little kid energy, you know, where you're like, oh my gosh, I could be crazy. But they're definitely very well, for the most part, very well behaved in my classroom here. The only thing I have to really get on to them about is like, get off your phone. But aside from that, it's pretty good. And then also like my coworkers here have a much stronger emphasis on work-life balance, which is wonderful. I think that's good, which you can listen to our worth like balance episode to hear a little more of our thoughts on that. 
I guess we can kind of start wrapping it up with a couple more general questions. I think one thing that would be good to know, just as a person who's interested in this, and also good to know for people who are considering this as a profession, what's something you wish you knew before you started teaching or, you know, something you wish someone told you? I think something that I wish someone told me was how much you are at least in the first couple of years, I mean, obviously I haven't gotten past those first couple of years yet, but in those first couple of years, you will be taking work home almost always. I mean, this might not be the case for every single person, but I have found it really hard to accomplish everything I want to accomplish at work and teach the kids in a way where I feel like they understand what we're doing and they feel confident in what we're doing. So just knowing that you'll probably have about two hours of work every day after work and then, uh, probably also a day or so on the weekend that you're going to have to work. That would probably just be one thing I wish that I knew was just the amount of work that you do have to take home. It, it can be a little bit overwhelming, but I mean, I look at it too and I'm like, we do have summers off for the most part. You know, you can go and get another job in the summer if you would like, but yeah, that's just the one thing that I wish I had recognized a little bit more or prepared myself for a little bit more before I got started. I think that's a good thing to know because huh, I'm saying that a lot. But with that, I think it's good for, say, a future teacher to hear just because I think it's something that everyone knows kind of on a surface level, like, oh, teachers take work home. But it's another thing to know slash be told exactly how much of your outside time you're going to be putting into this. Because I think for some people, they might not be able to do that or they don't want to do that. And I think that's something good to know before you get too far into it. Yeah. And you know, like I said, it can get easier as you get further along in your career, because if you have lessons to fall back on, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I could just use this lesson rather than spending like an hour planning this lesson. So it can get easier. It just kind of depends on how you run your classroom and what resources you have available. I think that's also a big one, because I know like for us, our school bought us the Art of Ed Flex curriculum, which we are so fortunate that they did that because it has like a whole bunch of lessons and stuff that you can use on there. So sometimes it's not always about reinventing the wheel and making a lesson yourself. You can also go on there and you can find some lessons to teach. The thing is, you probably will still have to make resources like slides or think about how you're going to pace it or how you're going to scaffold that learning. Like it's a good starting point to give you an idea. But even that is still really, really nice. And I really appreciate that our school did that for us. I feel like in general, it's easier to edit something than it is to create something from scratch. Definitely. And, you know, my coworkers, one thing that I appreciate about them is they're like, we don't always need to make something from scratch. It is fine to go and use something that has already proved to be tried and true, effective rather than stressing yourself out trying to make something completely new and innovative. Like, if you want to do that, awesome. Go for it. But don't feel obligated to do that all the time. And I think that that's also, like, a large part of that work-life balance that I was talking about is you can even see that in what they said there. It's more so about teaching the kids rather than always having to reinvent the wheel and prove yourself. Right, because I feel like if there's already a lesson there that you can base it on that does exactly what you need it to, what are you getting out of doing something completely over? You know, I feel like it's not a good use of your time and you could be putting those resources somewhere else, especially because you're already doing so many hours outside the classroom. Definitely. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just kind of what I think is helpful. So one thing I thought was would be interesting question is what is the best piece of advice that a teacher has given you? Oh, so I have a really good one for this one. So this was actually given to me as advice from a teacher in Kentucky towards the end of the year when the pandemic was happening and things were absolutely crazy. So she and I were having a conversation about how to deal with times when you may be interacting with a parent who's like being really challenging, whether that's like, you know, accusing you of things or challenging your authority or 
you know, and I'm not saying that all parent interactions are like this because at my new school, I have found that they are definitely not. My new school parents are so incredibly respectful and I really appreciate it. But, you know, occasionally you will run into that one time where you have a parent who's kind of, you know, in their eyes, probably trying to fight for their kid, but may feel a little bit more like an attack on you as a teacher. Um, And the best advice that she gave me was uh, to stay true to yourself. Like, you know who you are as a person and don't let how they're treating you affect what you say and what you do. So, for example, if someone is being really difficult, treat them how you would want somebody to treat, say, like your mom or your sibling. Just having that patience and just treating them in a way that's reflective of who you are as a person is really key. And I think that that's something that isn't even necessarily like a teaching specific thing, but I think this can be applied to everything, anything you do in life. However you react and what you do speaks volumes about who you are as a person. So always remember to stay true to who you are. I feel like sometimes when, you know, when you're talking to someone and they're being difficult or like someone's criticizing the way you do, whether it's like a parent or maybe like another teacher's like, why do you do it that way? You should be doing it this way. Like I do it. I think it is like you're saying, and I think it's hard to do it first, but to just stick to what you think is best. because. I don't know, you're kind of the one living with it. And it's like, as long as you're being respectful of other people and you're teaching the kids what they need to be taught, don't do it the way, you know, the teacher next door does it just because they've been there like 30 years. Yeah. So I thought that was really good. Another good piece of advice, which I've gotten in teaching and also in other moves in my career, is everything is about building relationships with people just in general, because and this, again, can apply to any field you go into. Building relationships with your coworkers, that's really big because then they will be there to defend you if something happens. Building relationships in teaching with the kids and making sure, you know, that they can see that you care about them as a person. Obviously, keeping everything professional, but like just making sure that they know that you're there for them is a huge, huge part of teaching. If you are, let's say, I don't know, a salesperson. Building relationships with your clients is also huge. If you cannot build an authentic relationship with someone, you are going to have a very hard time in any field you go into. I feel like other than, you know, let's say stuff about how to plan a curriculum or how to manage a classroom, I feel like a lot of your advice is really just good for anything, like just life. Because This may, for you, specifically be related to teaching, but you can take it and apply it to other things. Because I think like you're saying, it's like if you become, you know, friendly with coworkers or, you know, let's say sometimes they need help with something. And then it's like kind of like, you know, you have these people for when you need help with something. And I feel like that's nice. It's also nice. And I feel like you shouldn't feel obligated to be like best friends with your coworkers, but to kind of have this collegial environment where... I think especially with teaching where like, I feel like parents can kind of come after you sometimes to just have people that know what it's like to go through what you're going through. Definitely. And Leon, I also would say that advice applies to you when you go and become a lawyer. Building relationships with your clients is going to be everything. And your coworkers and people in the field, it's going to mean a lot. Yeah, definitely. I say as like somebody who has no experience in law, but <laughs> you know. In my eyes, I think that that would be like a big thing, even in like the career that you're hoping to or the career that you're going into. So to end our conversation about teaching, I want to know what you find the most rewarding thing about teaching and what makes you want to come back even with all the challenges. So I would say the most rewarding thing is when you can truly help a kid. So whether that's like you help them to grow emotionally and think about, you know, other people's needs above their own or whether you help them to grow in a certain academic area or just helping them to grow in general, I think is a huge part of why I like coming back to teaching is because at the end of the day, all politics and everything aside, it really is about the kids. You would not be going into teaching if you didn't care about education and making sure these kids 
have a pathway to success in the future. Those are the reasons why you want to come back year after year is just to help them to grow and become the best person they can be. Aww. Yeah, it's pretty cute. (laughs) (laughs) To wrap it up, uh, I do want to talk to you all a little bit about our book club that is up and coming. We are going to be reading Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. And that will be dropping on October 4th. It is a book with a little bit of magical realism. So if you are interested in finding out what that's like, you should definitely read it and then tune into our podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on teaching. Hope you learned a little bit about Kaylee through this and also just some general knowledge and tips if you are interested in being a teacher or interested in learning about life as a teacher. If you have thoughts on this episode or questions, you can send them to our email, Instagram, our Discord page. Direct questions will be answered by Kaylee because I know nothing on this. And don't forget to rate Selenials Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can find us at Zillennials Podcast on Instagram or email us at zillennialspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to hit the subscribe button and stay a while. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.